Amen. Well, good morning, Calvary Church. Again, it is great to see you guys. It is good to be with you. Good to uh, come to God's Word together this morning. You guys can go ahead and turn in your Bibles or scroll in your app to the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 12. As you're doing that, I have a question that I want to be on our minds today as we're coming to John chapter 12. The question is, why do you believe? Why do you believe? Why do we believe as a, as a church? Believing is essential to what we do, what it means to be a Christian. Uh, we are often called believers. It's how we refer to ourselves. And belief is central to the book of John that we've spent the last 10, 12 weeks in at this point. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Belief is central to what we do, and it is central to our passage this morning that we're going to be looking at. What, why do we believe? When we left off last week, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead, which is pretty impressive. We have to admit that. That's pretty, pretty good. Uh, this is the final of the seven signs of the book of John, these miraculous events that point to who Jesus is as the Son of God. And now in chapter 12, we're shifting a little bit. This is a beginning of the end of, of Jesus' public ministry, of preaching, of performing miracles and healings to the public. And starting in the next chapter, 13, Jesus is going to move to be almost exclusively with his disciples. We're going to see his final week and a long time in the upper room as he gives the Lord's Supper, as he teaches his disciples. And then finally, we'll receive the narrative of the crucifixion and resurrection. So this is the end of Jesus' public ministry. We're moving from focusing on knowing Jesus as the Christ to finding new life in his name, something Pastor Kendrick showed us last week. All throughout chapter 12, there's tension that's building, building, building. Tension that's begun a long time before in the gospel. Jesus' enemies are angry. They've been getting angrier for a long time. And when Lazarus walked out of that tomb, it says they resolved then that they were going to put an end to Jesus. The irony is that when they saw Lazarus, they said, we're going to kill that guy too. He raised him from the dead. We're going to try and kill him again. This tension is building. We're on a collision course right now in the book of John. To Jesus' arrest, to his execution, we're on a collision course to the cross. Keep that in mind as we read these verses today. We're going to focus on verses 36 through 50, and we're going to read that right now. We're going to talk about how we got there, but this is a long chapter with a lot of different pieces. So we're going to focus on the end here, kind of the end um, summary of Jesus' public ministry and then look at how we got there. So let's go to God's Word. Let's read in John chapter 12 verses 36 through 50. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God." 
And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Church, let's pray together as we come to God's word. Father, we love you and we praise you for your gift to us, these words of life, these words that testify to Jesus. Father, I pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your eyes. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. As we said, chapter 12 is a collision course to the cross. And before we get to this final statement about belief and, and why Jesus came, we have these three incidents, these three episodes that all point us to the death of Jesus. And there, two of them are, are pretty well known. So at the beginning of the chapter, from 1155 to 1211, we have Mary, Lazarus's sister, who we met last week, anointing Jesus. This is six days before the Passover, about a week before Jesus' trial. Jesus returns to stay with Lazarus and his sisters in Bethany, which is about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And during a meal there, Mary comes and she pours an expensive jar of, of ointment, of anointing oil on Jesus' feet. She does this as a gesture of reverence and devotion to Jesus to show, her, uh, show that he is her Lord, that she is honoring him. And this doesn't go over very well with the disciples around and say, that's a lot of money. That's like a year's worth. We could have done something better with that. And Judas especially really doesn't like this. But Jesus stands up and says, no, she has acted appropriately. She has acted righteously. He shows that Mary's anointing both indicates adoration and devotion, which is good. But he says, this is really good because I will not have much time among you. My time is short and she is taking advantage of the time. He's going to leave soon. This is the last few days they have with him. Soon he will no longer be there. And the, the spices, the ointment she uses, looks to his burial, looks to the next time he will be anointed after his death when he is placed in the tomb. It's looking to his burial. The second event, the second little episode, is the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Jesus has become very famous over his three years of ministry. People have heard about him. They've heard that he's coming. And they've heard about these miracles that he's done. They've heard that this guy Lazarus was dead, and now he's walking around and telling people about it. So uh, they want to come and see. And so they gather, and as he enters Jerusalem, there is a parade. And they throw their coats in front of him, and they wave palm branches, and they sing, Hosanna, save us now. The Messiah is here. This is the king who they've been waiting for. But he's not the king that they thought he would be. He doesn't come on a war horse to beat out the Romans out of the city. He comes on a donkey. He comes to die. He comes in humility. He's not the Messiah that they expected. He's a Messiah come to die. And then finally, the third episode begins in verse 20 through 23. And this is what really kicks things off. Um, several Greek visitors enter Jerusalem. 
These are Gentiles. They're not Jewish people, but they're interested in knowing more about what the Bible teaches about God. And they've heard about Jesus somehow. And so they come to some of the disciples as kind of an intermediary, and they say, we would like to meet Jesus. We'd like to talk with him. And so these disciples take this to Jesus, and Jesus responds in a really interesting way. He totally kind of drops the the visitors, right? He doesn't actually—we don't get back to them. But Jesus stops everything, and he says, the hour has come. It's time. For chapters and chapters, Jesus has bided his time. He hasn't pushed the issue. When the opposition has come too close, he's withdrawn. When it's come to saying clearly who he is, he's told parables, and he's um, spoken only to the disciples. He's been very guarded about when this confrontation will happen. It will happen in God's perfect timing, not a moment before. Jesus says it's time. Why? Because Gentiles have come, and they're ready to hear the gospel. Jesus' public ministry was about taking the gospel to the people of Israel, to preach to them first that the Messiah had come, that God had come to save his people, and they hadn't listened. And so now it's time for what we'd hear about in the book of Acts, the gospel going out. It's time for what we all, sitting in this room, have benefited from, the gospel going to the ends of the earth, people from every tribe and tongue and nation believing in Jesus. The hour has come. But something must happen first. For the gospel to go out, for evil to be defeated, for the nations to come to Jesus, he must first die. His death is necessary. It is coming. All three of these events point us to Jesus' death and its absolute necessity. This was Jesus' plan. This was what he came to do. This wasn't something that happened out of his control. It wasn't even the time out of his control. At the perfect time, according to plan, Jesus came to die. Everything has been building to this. Look at what he says in verses 23 through 26. This is right after hearing about the the Greek visitors. He answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant uh, will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The way to glorification is through suffering. It's through death. Jesus had to go to the cross. By suffering and dying, Jesus brings life to you and to I. And that's the secret of the Gospel of John, is that the death and the suffering and the humiliation of Jesus is actually his glorification. It's actually him being lifted up and declared to be God himself, declared to be the king. This is the path forward. Not just for Jesus, but for all followers of Jesus. It is the path through the cross. It is the path through the passion, through the suffering, through the rejection that he experiences. And it is the only way to lead him to this, this plan that has come from the beginning to save us from our sins. He is glorified on the cross as the promised king, the son of God. The way to glory is through suffering. And so we must believe in the life-giving power of the death and glorification of Jesus. His death was necessary. This is a big deal. Jesus has been uh, waiting for this for a long time, and now he is declaring it publicly to the crowd. 
And especially to the disciples, they should have realized this is the moment. This is what we've been talking about for three years, guys. Here it is. It's an incredible declaration of a beautiful gospel of salvation, what, what 400 years of waiting for God's promises has brought them to. And the response is absolutely terrible. It is just like a, it falls completely flat. There's no big standing ovation. They don't say, let's do the parade again. That's such good news. They, they don't do any of that. All they do is the crowd kind of scratches their head and says, what? That can't be right. The Messiah is going to die? No, 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 no. This is a terrible response. They, they respond with disbelief. How could they believe in a crucified Messiah? That's not, that's not how I thought this would go. Jesus' death on the cross, both then and now, is the stumbling block. It's the thing that holds so many people up. Uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty three says that the cross is offensive, that it was a stumbling block to the Jews, and it was considered utter foolishness to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. And really, this is the response we've gotten throughout the Gospels, not just in John. Uh, it's been lacking. The people who should have realized the most, the experts in God's word, who had been waiting for these promises, who had dedicated their lives to studying them, they didn't get it. The 12 hand-chosen uh, uh, disciples who had been getting special instructions, they got extra stuff. Jesus was very patient with them. They didn't get it. One of them, in fact, would betray and murder him. We hear about this uh, already in, in chapter 11 and, and continue to see G Judas betray them. Worse than that, the people who were eyewitnesses there, they saw Jesus at work, right? They saw these miraculous signs. They saw him walk on water. They saw him feed 5,000 people. They saw him give a blind man new sight. And they saw him call a dead guy out of a tomb. That should be a pretty good indication that what he's saying is pretty trustworthy, right? He spoke as one with authority. He taught the scriptures in a way that they'd never heard before. They saw what they needed to see, and yet so many refused to believe. As we said earlier, when they saw Lazarus alive, they're like, oh, we've got to kill him, which is just crazy. You know, you're like, well, we didn't stop him before, so probably won't stop him this time. Um, so the question then at the end of Jesus' public ministry is, why is this the case? Especially, the question is for the Jewish people, for the, for the passage we started with. Why have the Jews not believed? After all, they had everything they needed to. Why are those who were most likely to follow Jesus, why have they largely rejected it? Not, not completely, but largely. Why do many remain in unbelief? This is troubling to us. Fittingly, all of this is about belief. That's where we started. Why do we believe? We believe because it is a matter of life and death. This passage shows us over and over again that belief is the whole ballgame. Belief is what separates the followers of Jesus from everybody else. Light and darkness, life and death, it all hinges on belief. This is front and center here. And the question, why have they not believed, is ringing in our ears. The importance of Jesus' identity, all that his death accomplishes, all of it comes through belief in Jesus. Through belief, we have life in Christ, and we can dwell in his life. Without belief, there's only death and darkness and judgment. And so to try and answer this question, John is going to quote two passages from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. A prophet who knew a lot about people who didn't listen, who prophesied for years, and had God tell him what we read in verse 40 that they would not believe that he had blinded their eyes, that he had hardened their hearts. 
This is to help us explain why there is unbelief. And then it's going to eventually lead us to this final appeal to believe, to trust, to believe in Jesus. As we said, these verses mainly are answering the question, why didn't the Jewish people, why didn't God's chosen nation believe in Jesus more fully? But they also speak to us today when we encounter so many who do not believe in Christ. We only have to look around in our world around us, right? This, this city we live in, this country we live in, this world we live in is filled with people who have heard of Jesus and have chosen not to believe. Some very strongly, some very angrily. And for us, it can be frustrating to look at our culture around us and say, how do you not see this? There's all kinds of issues related to this, right, that we can get so hung up on. We can talk past each other and become so angry. How do you view an unborn life this way? How can you be so confused by the difference between male and female? How can you treat the most vulnerable this way? How can you not see the value and wisdom of the biblical vision for marriage? All of these things, these things drive us crazy. We can't understand how you can't see this. And more importantly than any of that, how can some hear the gospel and it changes their life? And how can some not see it and never see it? Why is this the case? And for some of us, it might be really personal. We might have good, good friends who do not believe in Jesus, no matter how much we have shared with them. We might have close family members, people we love, people who we lay our life down for, don't know Jesus. And it pains us. We don't know why this can be the case. You might be one who's struggling with this question yourself. When I asked why do you believe, you might say, I don't. I'm trying to, but I don't. These are real questions for us, and this passage helps us to start to answer these questions. These are some of the hardest questions we face from Scripture. Jesus is going to give us something towards an answer. Let's start with unbelief. Why do so many fail to believe in Jesus? Isaiah 53, 1 and 6, 10, these two quotations there, they talk about the refusal of of Isaiah's audience, of Israel, to believe in God's word. And so they're appropriate for looking at this here. And lead us to what is unbelief. We're going to say that unbelief is the conscious rejection of God and his word. The conscious rejection of God and his word, a.k.a. rejecting Jesus and his gospel. And that means that belief is not just a lack of information, right? It's not just knowing certain things. It's not a test you can study for like a math test. Uh, Belief is a spiritual state. It involves not just our mind, but our soul, but our heart and our whole person. And it goes back to the problem that all of us face with sin that has infected every part of us, that has corrupt every part of us. We are all born into a state of sin and unbelief. All of us naturally, without being taught to, have rejected God. And we've made something else our God. I'm my God. I get to decide what is right and wrong and how to live. Someone else gets to decide for me. Anything but not God. I'll do it myself. And so after all the powerful testimony and wise teaching and signs, people didn't believe because they had rejected God in the first place, because their hearts were far from God. To choose to reject Jesus, to ignore and discard all that he said and did before their very eyes, the spiritual state of unbelief is stronger than our arguments and our evidence. We have to remember that. This is a rejection of God and what he has told us. If that's what unbelief is, 
then I think this passage gives us three reasons why people, and I'll say us, why people like you and I disbelieve, why we remain in unbelief. The first one, as we've kind of hit on, is the sinful human heart. This is human responsibility. The Bible nowhere gives us an excuse to say, I can't believe because of God, or I can't believe because of X, Y, and Z, or I can't believe because of my circumstances. Now, God brings us clearly to say the problem with you rejecting God is you. It's a problem within all of us. It is, it is something that we choose, something that we do. Unbelief comes from our own sinful, corrupted hearts. In sin, we are blinded from reality, and we are able to rationalize our beliefs and actions and to ignore strong evidence, even when it confronts us right in the face. There's some really hilarious behavioral science studies that try and confront people with, like, actually pretty clear things when you have a confirmation bias that says the opposite, and people just, like, immediately say, oh, I made my decision in two seconds, and then I found the reason why I think that a little later on. You know, I had to think about it for a while, but we decide something, and then we explain it. That's just how our brains work. That's how we work on our own, and that's how sin twists that. We decide something, and then we find all of the reasons why we're right. One uh, behavioral psychologist says that we have an inner lawyer who's always on call, and he's there no matter what we say to say, oh, that's it, that's right, and here's reasons A, B, C, and D, and he's perfectly in the clear. Uh, and that's why all of us know that we're, we're right. You know, like regardless of what you guys say, I know I'm, I'm right. That's how we work. That's how sin works. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That's bad news. Romans 3, 9, and 10 tells us that no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. That's really, really bad news. People rejected Jesus because they had rejected God's rule in their life. They had loved the darkness more than the light. They refused to believe. And we become so good at that rationalization, we become so committed to that rejection that we begin to lose the ability to believe even if, even if we try. Look at this. In verse 37, it speaks about how although they had seen these things, still they did not believe. Some translations say they wouldn't believe. And then by verse 39, it says, and they could not believe. Our own sin damages our ability to see. We self-sabotage our own ability to believe. That is what sin does to us. The first reason for unbelief is us. The second reason, and this one is one of the most complicated, so we'll see what we can do here, is the perfect plan of God. The perfect plan of God. The perfect plan and the absolute power of God is on full display here. We call this God's sovereignty, that God is perfectly powerful, he is perfectly good, and things don't happen outside of God's plan. He is absolutely in charge of everything. And these quotes from Isaiah show that God knew many of the people would not believe in Jesus. And, in fact, that this was part of his plan. That God worked through this to accomplish what he would accomplish. And verse 40 goes so far as to say that God blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. We I mean, think of Pharaoh in Egypt in the Exodus story, that God hardened his heart. This is a hard thing to say. This is what the Bible teaches us. This is difficult. It does not mean that God has forced us to, to be in unbelief. It doesn't mean God has forced us not to believe. We start with this sin. This is the choice that we have made 
to reject God. God's binding and his blinding is a, a, a condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and to be what they have chosen themselves. Think about that. God's blinding and his binding is a condemnation for us to do and to be what we have chosen to be. It's God saying, okay, that's what you chose. Go for it. Romans 1 tells us that God has given us over into our sins so that we bear the full weight and consequences and and terror, honestly, of what we have chosen. That's what this is speaking of. It also does not mean, in a better note, it doesn't mean that human belief can throw a wrench in what God plans to do. God is not taken off guard when someone rejects him. He doesn't say, oh no, what was I going to do? I had a plan and now it's all messed up. There is nothing that we can do to throw off God's plans. When we disobey God, that's not going to mess him up. When we refuse to do what he asks us to do, that doesn't mess him up. That's what God's sovereignty means. God will work through everything. God, because he is the king and creator of the universe, because he is holy, good, and wise, and powerful, he can use the very worst things that we can do to bring his good purposes out of it. That doesn't make them good things. It makes them terrible things. But terrible things do not stop God from accomplishing his good will. And case in point, look at the cross. That is the worst thing that human beings have ever done. We have crucified the author of life. And God took that darkest deed, that most heinous crime, and brought the most beautiful good out of it. God is not bothered by, our, uh, by what we do to try and hinder his plan. God doesn't need us. And so unbelief and rejection, God is, both, is sovereign over both. God is never out of control of our situation. This also means that unbelief and rejection, in some sense, were necessary. Why? Because they led to the cross. Jesus had to die. That's what this, this whole chapter's been bringing us to. This had to be. Jesus had to go to the cross. And so they rejected him. And so they delivered him to be crucified. And so they whipped him and spat in his face and nailed him to a cross. Why? Because Jesus had to go to the cross to save us for our sin. Unbelief happens because of the perfect plan and sovereignty of God. Our final thing we'll say here, why we unbelieve is in verse 42 and 43. We, di- we don't believe because we value the glory from people over the glory of Christ. It talks about how not everyone rejected. And there are these people who, who John highlights who are leaders. They're Jewish um, leaders. They're experts in the law. We think of Nicodemus who came to see Jesus in chapter 3. And they are interested in Jesus. They think he's right. They think what he is saying is good. They don't want him to die but it says they were afraid of what everyone else would say. They're afraid of being cast out of the synagogue, of being rejected from being part of the Jewish people. And so they say nothing. They kind of want to be secret followers of Jesus, uh, private followers of Jesus. But John doesn't leave us room. Jesus leaves no room for secret Christians with one foot in and one foot out. It says that these ones, they love the glory that comes from man. They love the respect and the honor of being thought right by their peers. They sought the praise that other people would give them if they followed along with what everyone else was doing. The acceptance, the honor, the recognition, just belonging. 
That's the glory that comes from people. They feared people more than they feared God. And the love for the approval of society more than the glory of God. And what is the glory of God? It is Jesus himself. Jesus is the glory of God brought to us. It is the honor that comes from being included in in the, the life of Christ. Do we love the recognition of the world more than we love Jesus? Do we love the acceptance of the world more than we love Jesus? This should change our attitude. We must remember um, that we are called to be public followers of Jesus. We are called to boldness. We are called um, to, to value what God has called us to do more than what the world has called us to do. Don't be a secret Christian. Follow Jesus with our whole life front of everyone. These three reasons together, the sin in us, the perfect plan of God, and the fear of, of man more than the, than the love of Jesus, I think they should affect our attitude of those of us who believe. We spoke about that frustration with those who do not believe that I think we can really feel, especially in this moment we're in right now. I think the Christians must remember that we have the same sin in our own hearts. And that if it weren't for the grace of God, we might be in that same spot. If it weren't for the grace of God in our lives, we might be making that same argument that we find so frustrating. We too might be rejecting the gospel over and over and over again as a loved one tries to share it with us. Never treat belief in Jesus as a point of pride. It's not something that we've earned It's not because we're smarter than everybody else. It's God's grace in our lives. And so we as Christians have to approach people who do not believe with humility and with patience. Not to say that they're right. Not to say that all viewpoints are equal and valid, but to say, I I will walk through this with you. I will go slowly and I will trust in God's good and perfect plan as we lovingly declare the truth, as we lovingly publicly preach the gospel. And contrary to how all of this may sound, which is really dark, this is talking about why so many fail to find Jesus. This actually gives us some hope as we share the gospel. I think this is a better hope for our call to evangelize than anything else we can find. Because when a friend or family member does not believe, it is not because we have failed to make the perfect argument. It's not because we didn't know enough or because we didn't pray hard enough. It's not because we lost our control of our emotions and came on too strong or got too angry in a moment. It's not because of that. It's because of sin. You and I have no ability to create belief in someone. And so we don't have that pressure. We just have pressure to be the witness, to speak the truth of the gospel, to be public followers of Jesus for all to see. And we can trust God with the rest. We can share boldly because all we have to do is speak and God will do the rest. God is still in control. He is able to save anyone. So the person in your family, the person in your workplace, the society we're living in, no matter how stubbornly opposed to Jesus they are, no one is beyond the grace of God. No one is impossible for Jesus to find and to save. And so we can preach the gospel over and over with persistence, with patience, with grace, because we trust God and his good purposes. 
we can be public followers of Jesus, to train and disciple others to follow Jesus. That's unbelief. But that's not where he leaves us. He leaves us by calling us to belief. So let's look at belief as we close our time here today. Belief. Belief is God's gift and our response. It is what brings us to life in his name. Belief is embracing Christ with our whole being. When we believe with our heads the message that is told to us, the stories of who Jesus is and what he has done, when we affirm them, and then we use our hearts and we wholly trust in him, we put our weight on it, if we will, we, we, we commit ourselves to it with everything we have. And then we use our hands to follow through with, our obedi- with obedience, to live it out in our lives, with our head and our hearts and our hands, we believe, we give ourselves completely to Jesus. Belief is more than just knowledge, it is done with our whole selves. And as Jesus speaks here, as he summarizes the last, uh, really, the the core of what he's been saying for 12 chapters, starting in verse 44, we see the content of what it is that we must believe. We see the gospel message that we've been talking about for weeks. And it's summarized here in these repeated themes that John has been telling us over and over and over again. Jesus tells us that he has been sent by the Father that he is uniquely one with the Father, that he alone is the Son who is able to show us who God is and bring us to God. Jesus is the light of the world. Coming to him, believing in him, is to receive the light of salvation. To reject Jesus means to choose to stay in darkness and to face future judgment. The future judgment will be by the words of Jesus that we have either believed or rejected. The Father's very words spoken through Christ. And that to follow Jesus brings eternal life. This is the gospel. There are three parts in here that always have to go together. That we, when we're focusing on what it is we believe, there are three elements that John connects here, that Jesus connects here, that we have to have. They're the Word, they're the Son, and the Father. The Word, the Son, and the Father. The Word of God spoken through Jesus the Son that lead us to the Father. We cannot know God the Father apart from the Son. And we cannot follow the Son without his word, without his word that is given to us in scripture. And so we have some warnings here. We have to beware of any claim to know God that rejects or ignores Jesus. There is no way to the Father except through Jesus. Belief in the Son is the only way. He is the one who is eternally present with God the Father, with God the Spirit. They are inseparable. Any God without Jesus is a false God. And he's the only way we can know him through his death on the cross. Beware of any uh, claim to know God that rejects Jesus. Second, we need to beware of any claim about Jesus that rejects his divinity. If he is not one with the Father, he cannot save us. If he's not one with the Father, he cannot show us who God is. If he's not one with the Father, we should not trust any of his words. We should not trust any of this testimony that we have. Jesus is divine, or else he is not our Savior. Beware of any claim about Jesus that rejects his divinity. And finally, we have to beware of any claim to know Jesus without honoring his word. We cannot have Jesus and reject his very words, the very word of God that has been preserved for us. There is no follower of Jesus without his word, without his church. These are the ways that God has given us. These are the ways that that Jesus showed us to instruct us, to form us, to shape us into what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We cannot follow Jesus without living under the authority of of his words. And so we believe these three together, God's word, God's son, 
leading us to God the Father to gain real and eternal life in Christ. That is belief. And that is what Jesus calls us to. We said that unbelief involves multiple parts, right? That it involves ourselves and it involves God's good plan. Well, belief is the same way. Belief has both a human and a divine element. We called belief a moment ago uh, God's gift and our response. Belief is a human response. We have been given the gospel in his word, in, in the words that we've heard spoken to us. And so we have a responsibility to respond, to believe, to hear and understand the gospel and decide to trust in it, to, to build our lives on it. No one who wants to believe is denied. If we come to Jesus and say, I believe, I want to follow Jesus, no one is turned away. No one who knocks at the door is turned aside. No one who seeks the mercy of God goes away hungry. The call is to believe, and the door is wide open. Believe in Jesus, and you will receive life. This is the open response that we can really, truly take. It's up to us, human response. But belief is also a gift from God. Because of our sin, we cannot believe without the Spirit's help. Without God there to break down all of the anger and the stubbornness, the brokenness and the bitterness that keeps us from seeing the glory of Jesus. God's gift to us is that he moves that aside for us, that he opens the way for us so that we can truly see and we can truly believe in who Jesus is. So pray for God's gift of belief in, our, in your life. Pray for God's gift of belief in those around you. Belief is a gift from God. This is why we cannot boast. We cannot believe without the gift of God. And this brings us to one of my favorite verses in the Bible. This is a response from a man who is asking for Jesus' healing. He's asking for Jesus' help. It's in Mark 9, 29. The man calls out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. That is what it means to be a Christian. That is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We are all fighting against the sin and unbelief that's in our hearts. We are all fighting against these natural barriers that keep us from seeing truly who Jesus is. And so we too cry to Jesus to say, I believe you, help me to believe in you. We do that the first time we come to know him. We do that every day afterwards. Help me to believe today, Jesus. Help me to believe. And he promises to answer. We get hung up on this idea of sovereignty and is God blinding? But that's not where Jesus leaves us, is it? Jesus leaves by preaching the gospel and calling us to come to him. That's why Jesus came. Jesus says, I didn't come to judge. I didn't come with the purpose of destroying as many as I could. I came to save. I came that by belief in my name, you might have eternal life. And so Jesus ends his public ministry in verse 44 by crying out. He's not preaching the gospel with disdain. He's not preaching the gospel reluctantly. He is pleading, come and have life. This is how Jesus calls to us to believe. This is how we should send that same message to a world that does not believe. We cry out, come and receive the gospel. The, the Father does not desire the death of sinners as his ultimate goal. Jesus comes that we may believe and have life. 
Now there is judgment. He says this message of life, this message of come and see, come and receive life, when we choose to reject it, when we choose to reject Jesus and his divine words and his divine mission, then we're going to be judged by those very words that we have rejected. We're going to be judged by that very message that we heard and we chose to ignore. And that is a fearsome judgment. That is not a place we want to be to be anywhere close to be. But don't ever lose the sight of that Jesus came to call us. And so we cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. So church, as we close our time here today, let us heed the urgency of Jesus' final appeal. Let us remember that belief in the death and the glorification of Jesus is a matter of life and death. That we have the words of life in a world that is doomed in darkness. Let us remember that belief is both our responsibility and the gracious, loving, free gift of God. Let us drive us to two things today. Let us pray for our unbelief. I pray that our prayer as a church would be, Father, we believe in you. Help us with our unbelief that creeps in each day. Help us to believe each day in who you are. Secondly, I think this should drive us to pray and to plead for the lost who are around us. To pray and to plead with unbelievers who we know in our lives. We pray for them. We pray for God's gift of belief. We pray that they would too would cry out, help my unbelief. We have the words of life. Let's go take it to them with patience, with kindness, with gentleness. We believe, help our unbelief. Church, today, as followers of Jesus, we are going to close our service by declaring our belief in Jesus through the Lord's Supper. There are bowls around the back of the sanctuary with elements, with a little cup. And so if you didn't pick one of those up on your way, and you can go grab it now. I don't mind. You're, you're free to move. And, and you can raise your hand, too, and one of our deacons will come and, and bring one to you. We'll take this in just a moment. The Lord's Supper is a confession. It is a way that we say as public followers of Jesus that we believe. This is how Christians for 2,000 years have confessed the gospel. It's, it's a way we remind ourselves and a way that we declare to the world that we belong to Jesus. And so together today, as one body, as one church, we want to proclaim Jesus and his death in his resurrection. And we will proclaim this until he returns. On the night of his death, only a few days after what we just read through today, Jesus took his disciples into the upper room and he gave them this meal. He gave them this supper and told them that wherever Christians would gather, they were to repeat this. They were to do this in memory of him that they might remember his death for their sins and they would be united together as one body. And if you have followed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you have declared, I belong to Jesus, then we ask you to join us this morning in the supper. And Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
and likewise the cup. After he had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Church family, let's pray together as we close our time. Lord, today we declare that we believe. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, who suffered and died for our sins and for our salvation. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and the giver of life. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus and use each of us, use our church to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to our community. We love you, Lord Jesus. And in your name we pray. Amen.